Hey everyone, if you love listening to Curbsiders and want to enhance the experience, then now is a great time to join the Curbsiders Patreon with new annual memberships where you can save 10% off the monthly rate. You'll have the option to hear all the episodes ad-free plus twice monthly bonus episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com slash curbsiders. This is a great way to use that CME money that's probably burning a hole in your pocket plus support the show so we can keep bringing you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, mini series like teach and addiction medicine, our digest newsletter, and of course, expand our video content. So join the Cashlack family today at patreon.com slash curbsiders. You know, Paul, I was milking a cow and a fly <laughs> flew into its ear. So I thought that was weird, and I just kept milking. A little while later, Paul, the fly showed up in the milk bucket. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's why they say, Paul, in one year, out the other. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's not bad. Yeah, it's, it's not bad. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Frankwato, here with my great friend and America's primary care physician, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, tonight we're going to talk about common ear complaints in primary care with a great guest, Dr. Angela Pang. Uh, how are you doing? Are you excited for this show? Which we've I already really recorded. Excited for this show. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I am <laughs> retroactively excited for this episode that we've already recorded, just because we, we were talking about, we all... It's just ear pain all day long. Um, so it's I've, it's nice to have a little bit more of a, a firm framework and feel more comfortable knowing that I'm actually going after the right thing. So I thought this was actually a terrific episode. Yeah. So, Paul, before you introduce our, our co-host, uh, I want to tell people, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. Happy to. As per usual, Matt, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use... Expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as you mentioned, we have a very special co-host with us. We are joined by the effervescent and amazing primary care wizard and pimple popper of the ear physician assistant, <laughs> Isabel Valdez, <laughs> curbsider super producer, irrigator extraordinaire. Isabel, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about this. I can't wait back. Can't wait to get back to clinic and just clean out ears now properly without Q-tips. <laughs> I can't imagine you're using Q-tips before. Never. No. Yeah. No, but tonight we had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Angela Peng. She's an assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine in the Department of Otolaryngology. And her practice focuses on the E in ENT, and where she uh, she's having completed a lateral skull-based neuroontology fellowship at the University of Minnesota. Medical education is one of her main career passions, and just as her mentors had inspired her to pursue this pathway, she aspires to do the same for the future of medicine, where she teaches residents and other learners, uh, and us tonight. Uh, she is excited to, and honored to be making her debut with us here at the podcast and be part of the Curbsiders, where um, and, and we got some great pearls from her. I, one of my favorites is like, I feel like we got a lot of DIY, like DIY cleansers, DIY sinus rinses. Uh, you can use ophthalmic uh, medications for the ear. It's more on that. So um, without further ado, I think we should go. We should get started. 
And I did want to remind the audience that this and most episodes are available for CME credit through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And wanted to take a quick opportunity to thank all of our patrons on Patreon. Paul, a lot of patrons now having fun uh, on the Discord there. Any, a lot of good music recommendations lately from you? Anything yep, to say? A lot, of, a lot of music chit chat, a lot of uh, running cases past each other, or sort of what, what would you do in this specific circumstance? And while clearly we cannot provide uh, formal medical advice, like it's just, a, it's a nice open space to have conversations about stuff we run into in primary care. So it's been, yeah, yeah, it's, it's been one of the best parts of actually starting the Patreon. Yeah. And so uh, thank you to everyone who's joined. And if you haven't joined, please check it out. It's been a lot of fun. We do bonus episodes twice a month. We answer listener questions on those episodes and also just kind of in real time uh, on the Discord. So uh, check that out. And uh, now let's get to the interview with Dr. Angela Peng. Angela, thank you so much for joining us. The audience has heard your bio already, but they would love to hear hobbies or interests outside of medicine um, that or what you're enjoying these days. Um, I really love tennis, but one of my passions is actually cooking. Um, I know U.S. Open is out, so I, we could always talk about tennis, but um, I love eating, so therefore I love cooking and all different types of food. Um, I was born in Taiwan, and my mom's a great cook. And, and uh, when I left for college at Rice, I didn't know how to cook the stuff that she had cooked for me. And so I had to learn somehow, had to survive to, in order to enjoy the foods I love. So um, yeah, cooking is one of my favorite things to do. And I'm trying to get my kids to do it too. Paul, this is becoming a theme. A lot of our guests recently are talking about cooking. <laughs> yeah, which I love. Um, so I, I will ask, are, in terms of continuing education, do you have a, a, a recent favorite cookbook or is this all just kind of self-taught stuff? Oh, gosh. Uh, I love Top Chef, too. I mean, I love uh, cooking shows, competition cooking shows. Um, I think they always inspire me to to want to cook and, and go out there and cook something strange. But though I don't I can't guarantee my family will eat it. But I mean, it's just <laughs> at least something, you know, cool. I, obviously, like things like sea urchin is very hard to get, you know, uh, in my regular grocery store. But you know, I just, uh, yeah, I just enjoy their creativity uh, in, in making food taste, taste so good. <laughs> I think I could probably give up cable if it wasn't for the cooking channel. Like, that's the one thing. It's like the one, it's like the mafia. It's the one thing that kind of drags me back in. Like, I just don't know if I can get <laughs> rid of that. Um, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, I was I was listening back to another recent episode. We were talking about Bouche de Noel, which is something I had oh, never sure. heard of before. <laughs> we had like a 10-minute conversation about carrot cake and uh, with some other fancy desserts people were making. Uh, so it's a great. It's a, uh, my point is, Paul, we're putting on a great medical podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Isabel, anything you wanted to ask about before we uh, get on with to the cases? Um, well, uh, Angela, you and I, you, I... I know that it might come up that you teach residents and I teach PA students. So uh, what is one of your favorite pearls that you like to share with your students, be it like about life or, or Asia, your residents, your trainees, like your favorite pearl that you let, like your parting words, take these words and wisdom, <laughs> your words of wisdom that you like to share with them so that I could tell my students something new. <laughs> um, well, I, I, this may not be completely new, but I always tell my students and residents treat others uh, uh, as you would treat yourself, uh, and with respect, because, um, you know, these, everybody that you teach and you encounter in your daily, uh, 
you know, life and at work or outside of work, but particularly at work, uh, they could be your future colleagues. They could be your partners. They're going to be people who you're going to be consulting um, or they are going to be consulting you. And so giving that impression, being respectful of uh, you know, your, your colleagues, your future colleagues is just as important um, as, you know, being respectful of the colleagues that you encounter daily currently. So yeah, I, you know, my students are going to be either going to be treating me one day or they're going to be uh, you know, teaching others one day or, and, and, you know, we're, we're going to be collaborating on cases. So yeah, that's one thing that I always tell um, my students uh, and residents to make sure to treat everybody with respect. Yeah, that's why I think that's that goes along with the lines where they say doctors who have been patients are always better doctors because you know you you've been in that that reverse role where you have that feeling of helplessness and you're uh, you're, you're relying on someone else to give you a lot of information, take care of you. I think sure. it's it's hard to do. It's it's very easy to get jaded. It's hard to. Uh, to put yourself in that mindset of the patient. Absolutely. Well, we have, this is a big topic. This is a great primary care topic. Uh, it's stuff that, the stuff that you see, if you're doing a clinic all day, at least one person's going to complain about their ear. <laughs> so, uh, Isabel, why don't we go to a case from Cashlack? Yeah, let's get started. So we're going to start with an inner ear case with uh, Maurice. He is a 54-year-old male with hypertension and sleep apnea, and he came to clinic with left ear discomfort since he flew back from his beach vacation about 10 days ago. And he wants you uh, he wants you to see if he has an ear infection or another ruptured eardrum. He hopes that you can give him antibiotics and steroids because that always clears it up right away. So that's kind of makes me cringe when they start with, I just need my antibiotics and I'm out of here. <laughs> so, so good thing they didn't just, they're actually in the office and not on the phone call and asking you to prescribe them antibiotics over the phone the so. uh, ma probably told them to come in actually yeah so that's, that's good <laughs> so so yeah so first of all i think i could still use some some tips and tricks on how to do an exam so uh sure. could you share with us how it is that you would approach the physical exam and what are some of the common issues that you see your trainees do that you're like no 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 you're doing this wrong can to have this approach that actually makes it a better exam and just of course share some ideas. Oh, uh, sure. Um, I think one of the main things is uh, to get comfortable when you're examining the patient. And so, for example, I'm a little bit on the shorter side. Um, and so uh, patients who uh, are shorter or taller, they have to make sure their ear is at your eye level. You're not bending over. It's, it's all about ergonomics as well. Um, but in terms of the actual exam, it's important to kind of pull the ear back just gently and when you insert the speculum, just don't shove it in. You actually, I want you to look at your inside your ear speculum as you're actually going into the ear canal. Some people's ear canals are very curvy um, or they kind of may kind of extend more, be torturous and go superiorly uh, or posteriorly. So when you insert it in straight on, you can bump it into your uh, ear canal and they're just going to jump back right away. And somebody who has an ear infection, potentially, they're just not going to let you look in that ear again, you know, or they don't want you to touch that ear again. So that's actually one of the main things that I usually tell my students to make sure you do is look as you get into the ear canal. And of course, um, you know, look at the, uh, the ear canal and the quality of the ear canal. Is there redness? Is there fluid? Um, is there bone that's exposed in that area? Um, and looking at the eardrum, is there an eardrum even there? Uh, or is there, uh, you know, how big is the hole? Do you see any uh, hearing bones? 
Um, and so the ossicles are typically located in the back uh, superior quadrant. Um, and so you can look, that's where you kind of can look for the presence of um, the ossicles there. Um, and then also look at the status of the middle ear. Is there fluid in the middle ear? Is there mucus? Um, is there a growth? Is there a big red pulsating mask inside the ear? It could be something <laughs> like a glomus or something like that. So, yeah, or cholesteatoma. Um, so, yeah, those are the things to kind of look out for. But I, as I tell um, my residents and students, and even my residents sometimes, you know, it's only in their PGY three year after three years of training when they actually start feeling comfortable looking at ears, it's because they do it over and over again. And you have to see the normal. Just don't look at people with ear complaints, but actually look at everybody with any other complaint and look at normal ears so that when you actually look at an abnormal ear, and actually um, you can recognize it's like, oh, this is not what I usually would see and, you know, and go from there. This episode is brought to you by Pathway. Audience, if you haven't used Pathway yet, then what are you waiting for? This is a new clinical decision support tool, completely free to use, that's going to empower you as a practitioner of medicine to make evidence-based decisions in a quick and efficient manner. That's because Pathway is modern, it's user-friendly, and it's going to simplify guidelines, trials, and other complex medical data so that you can use it right at the point of care. So let's say you're about to go into a room and talk to one of your patients that had a new diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis, and you don't remember much about that. Well, you can pull up the Pathway app. It's going to summarize all the guidelines so you can look at the steps in diagnosis, management, and you're going to be able to sound like you know what you're talking about when you're seeing the patient, and that's going to put them at ease. So Pathway is going to help make you a better physician. Pathway is updated daily, so it's going to keep you in the loop about the latest medical research and guidelines. And speaking of that, they also offer weekly digests for primary care and internal medicine. It's going to come as a short, concise email so that you as a doctor or a medical professional can stay up to date with the latest research and guidelines so your knowledge is current and you don't have to spend hours every week reading dense journals. They're going to do that all for you. So download the Pathway app today. It's an innovative tool that can improve your clinical decision making and enhance your patient care. Go to pathway.md. That's right. Get the app today at pathway.md. Yeah, so along those lines, I feel like I think I was always trained to go to the unaffected ear first. So if someone comes in with a unilateral hearing concern, yeah. go to the ear that's not bothering them first just so you have an idea of what their normal looks like. So you have some sort of basis for comparison too. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of patients have you know, called me out. It's like, that's not my problem here. I'm like, no, no, no. I always want to get a baseline and see what your good ear looks like first. Absolutely. Can I ask a follow-up about the fluid? So when I when I'm looking at the tympanic membrane, oftentimes I'll see, you know, a clear tympanic membrane and I can see the bones and, but it, it looks like maybe there's some clear fluid there, but I'm not, I'm not seeing like an air fluid necessarily, but it just looks like it's a little plump and there's some clear fluid behind it. Um, how do you, like, what do you look for that's telling you that it's an abnormal fluid that shouldn't be there? Uh, I don't, I don't think I remember this from like years and years ago when I was learning this for the first time. So, so color is a big thing for me. Um, and then also the light reflex um, is somewhat helpful, although you can still get light reflex even if, it's, if there's fluid inside the middle ear, um, especially if it's a very bright otoscope. 
Um, I am lucky because I, as a practicing neurotologist, I usually have a microscope in the in my clinic room. So I get to cheat a little bit and get to see and, <laughs> and <laughs> have like 10x mag in order to really see the eardrum. So, you know, I, that's the, the little caveat there in my exam. But um, uh, but normally, um, you would kind of look for color. And so even if it's dull, um, but it looks clear, one of the things that would be concerning is CSF fluid um, could present actually as clear fluid, and it, it can be dull at the same time. So that's also a, a concerning exam. But then you have to look at patient's history, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in terms of, uh, I think the color is like the first and foremost thing I kind of look for. Is is it more you know serious, which is yellow, kind of straw colored, um, or is it kind of red? kind of more bulgy kind of looking um, thing or um, or is there just like a pus on the eardrum and there's you know nothing behind it gosh it's it's so hard to see it when some people who have a lot of infections before their eardrums are so scarred and they have just kind of that um, thickened eardrum and it's kind of white opaque kind of look so then and you're like gosh what am I seeing and sometimes you just can't see because it's calcification plaques on the eardrum and you just mm-hmm. can't see through it. So long story short, I think that's the easiest way of looking yeah. at the eardrum. That That's one thing I'm confident I see a lot of the time where I was saying this before you had joined that when I'm, I'm looking at the eardrum, sometimes it's just the clear normal and you get the light reflex and everything. And other times you see, you see scattered opacities and, and I'm just like, is that, I think that's just scarring probably from prior things, but, uh, you know, I, I never know. I'm assuming it's not like candida on the eardrum, but uh, in most <laughs> situations. No fuzzy, no white fuzzy things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that that's, that's very helpful. Is there any resource you point your learners to like a picture, like a, a resource that has good pictures of the eardrum other than just like an up to date or something like that? I do. Um, yes, up to date is great. Um, I actually collect my own photos, so um, I use that to um, from you know previous patient uh, um, exams. I actually save in and as my library to kind of go through it. I don't have, unfortunately, a particular kind of uh, library that I can direct it, uh, you to, but mm-hmm. um, I think some of the internet ones uh, with good reputable clinics they have great pictures sometimes. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And Angela, critical question here. Yes. When you hold the otoscope, what where's the handle? Because I feel like I've seen students <laughs> taught in a way that is like they're just like they're they're in contortions because they're supposed to be protecting you. So is the handle six o'clock? Are we at three o'clock? Are we I favor actually twelve o'clock? So what's your what's your personal technique just to validate me or make me feel ashamed? <laughs> so <laughs> for the right ear, for somebody's right ear, you should be holding holding the otoscope uh, with your right hand. Okay. So your hand should be resting on the cheek and you're holding your otoscope, your handle of your otoscope, kind of grabbing it like this, but using your pinky to kind of hold it. So when the patient moves, you move with them. Same mm-hmm. thing. So it's going to some people who are not left, uh, left-handers and they're right, righties. You, it's better actually to switch the handle to your left hand and then um, and look in the left ear with the left hand as well. And then mm-hmm. use the other hand to grab and kind of stabilize the head and ear at the same time. That's very helpful. Great. Yeah, helpful. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Paul, have we satisfied your physical exam? Uh, <laughs> you know, the physical exam nerd inside of you? 
Sure. Yeah, we can we can skip insulation for now, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. Can we? It's, uh, <laughs> is how practical is that for? It wasn't something I was ever taught. I, I that that bulb came with the otoscope that I have, but I I have to confess that I haven't used it much. Uh, so it's everybody's ear canal is very different, and so unless you mm. have the proper oto, um, the speculum size. At uh, the pneumatic otoscopy, you can lose air around your a smaller yeah. speculum, and then you don't get a really great exam. And so um, you have to make sure the speculum is snug. Um, again, getting an audiogram actually is very helpful because it, they do tympanograms for you. Uh, mm. And the tympanograms actually will show you uh, what the eardrum is doing. Is it kind of retracted? Is it move? Um, but yes, I, the the office uh, exam, the, uh, the pneumatic otoscopy is helpful, but it can be difficult to do, <laughs> like Paul said. I have to say, and I know Matt's trying to get past physical exam, but if I am in an office where I have a working otoscope that has a light that turns on and specula, it's like the best day of my life. Like the idea of like, <laughs> actually being able to do insulation too. Like that's, <laughs> then I would just immediately ascend into heaven. So I can't imagine having that kind of capacity. Angela, in residency, Paul carried around a very nice mini pocket otoscope that oh. was like, it was maybe like a little bit bigger than this thing here that I'm holding. And people would like hunt him down for it because there was no working otoscopes uh, anywhere. And uh, so I much respect to Paul Williams. I, yeah, he's been doing, cool. he's the real deal. That's why <laughs> he's America's primary care physician for that reason. And you remembered insufflation bulbs because I completely forgot about them all. <laughs> completely forgot. I was impressed too. <laughs> I did a Pete's rotation 27,000 years ago. Yeah. All right. Uh, Isabel, I think you need to pull us forward or yes, we're just going to spend yes, our right. whole time here. Uh, <laughs> Talking about insufflation bulbs. Now we, we know how to hold a the the otoscope. So now, what's the approach to to Maurice with uh, with this ear pain since va- since he came back from vacation? Because he's concerned about another eardrum rupture. So, how would you approach a patient with this concern and you know and taper the expectation of like I want antibiotics now? So, sure. Um, I I think the key thing is well, they're here to see you for an ear complaint, so you have to do a good examination of the ear. Um, in the ear canal, middle ear, and external ear to make sure there's no lesions. Uh, there's nothing out on the outer outer part of the ear that could be causing the ear pain as well, besides potential middle ear pathology. Um, you know, like even herpetic lesions can occur in the outer ear, and that could actually result in Bell's palsy. Um, it's called something called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Um, and so they're, they're, you know, they but they present initially with ear pain. So there are different things that you can look at in the ear, but then if that examination looks pretty normal, um, and you're not really suspect of a, an otologic etiology, then you kind of go outside of the ear um, a little bit and the surrounding structures like your TMJ, uh, the muscles of mastication. So you have your temporalis muscle up there and your mas- uh, masseter muscle right here. Um, so you can actually, instead of just having TMJ kind of arthritic pain or you know um, joint pain, you can actually have myofascia pain. And uh, one of the, my um, the dental friends, uh, OMFS friends, he always kind of gripes on me saying, gosh, you guys diagnosed with, you tell, you got the TMJ. Well, like everybody has a TMJ, you know, but it's actually the, you know, my, the pain that's associated with the muscles attached to the TMJ that causes a lot of the pain. And so it's more like myofascia pain. That's your, your, their true diagnosis. And so those, those are the things that you kind of have to look for. 
if everything in the surrounding area looks great, you know, there's no sinus issues, then I look in the throat as well. So some people who have, you know, tonsillitis, throat pain, they can actually get referred pain in the ear as well. So, um, you know, even throat cancer, people who have, you know, base of tongue cancer or laryngeal cancer, sometimes their initial presenting uh, complaint is actually that unilateral ear pain. And then the ear exam looks great. And so we have to look for other etiologies uh, from, you know, inside out, different entities that could cause the ear pain. Yeah. So that would be like your, your older patient who history of smoking, uh, heavy alcohol use, that sort of thing. Like you'd be more keyed into that, Could that be. sort of uh, possibility. And, and even younger patients, I feel like younger and younger the patients um, do are developing, you know, even, you know, throat cancer, or base of tongue cancer, or, you know, head and neck cancers um, that don't meet the usual criteria. But mm. yes, um, especially if you don't you know, uh, see any obvious ear problems, you know, for, for, for their, why they're coming to see us, then I would consider looking elsewhere as well. Yeah. yeah. Like HPV you're thinking about. Exactly. Those medical, con- yeah. And you say looking in the throat. I mean, generally, if if I can't figure out what's causing the ear pain, I'm often sending to e- e- ENT, and the, and they're doing the nasolaryngoscopy where they can kind of look in the area. Is that that's what you mean? Because when I try to look at people's throat, if they're like malinpotty three or four, which I think is like the majority of my patients, <laughs> I'm like maybe seeing the top of their tonsils if I'm lucky, and I I'm not confident that I would see you know anything bad that's going on back there. Yeah, I. Yes, absolutely. We'd be happy to help. That's what that's that's our that's what we're here for. Yeah. Okay. And then other things. I mean, I know like the. I mean, I'd be very proud of myself if I figured this out. But like somebody with cardiac or like GI issues from the vagus nerve that's presenting with inner ear pain, is that something that's like, you know, commonly happening? Do you think, or is that just sort of like a fun theoretical thing to? <laughs> Uh, Add anxiety to me when I'm working up your pain. <laughs> I think you could put that in the more kind of kind of zebra uh, yeah. rare categories. Um, I you just do common things co- uh, being you know more common. I I would go through that route, but you know sometimes I do that. My examination, everything is normal, um, even the scope. I do I do imaging after that, mm-hmm. um, and I get. I check to see with a CT neck uh, with contrast to take a peek at, you know, what you, exactly what you said, any neck uh, tumors or masses that could be causing referred um, issues. Yeah. So yeah. it's so basically, to summarize what you said so far, first thing is like you key in on the ear. Is there anything going on with the outer ear, the ear canal, the the middle ear that is looks like it's causing this? If not, you're looking sinuses and the throat. The throat might involve us sending them to you to do the nasolaryngoscopy. But if that's not showing anything, then it's going to be potentially CAT scan to to look at everything and see if there's anything serious going on. Correct. Okay. So Isabel, what's next for our patient here? What? Yeah. So actually, as you're starting to think about the differential for this patient, like what are what, actually how, what are the key questions that you, you hone in on? So the questions I typically ask, you know, do they have any pain, yeah, drainage? Um, how long has this been going on? Is it intermittent? Sometimes they talk about how it just comes and goes, especially if they eat or it comes and goes uh, certain times of the day. Uh, or when they open their mouth and, you know, you think more of TMJ issues, but um, 
if they have a history of prior chronic infections, uh, if they have any remote history or, you know, recent history of having otologic surgery like ear tubes. I like to go from the inside out model. So like, again, focusing on the ear stuff, but then looking for other things that can contribute to ear problems, like sinus, nasal uh, type of sources. So do they have allergies? I feel like a lot of people here in Houston have some sort of allergies. And so they always have some sniffles um, or some congestion. Uh, and then, of course, you know, chronic sinus issues as well um, that could cause some eustachian tube problems and therefore ear problems as well. Um, other people that you can uh, think about more probably more prone to this are, you know, people who uh, fly and that there's change in altitudes um, when they descend, uh, they have problems with flying uh, and clearing their ears. And so those people also tend to have more um, oologic kind of eustachian tube um, and probably effusion issues. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned e eustachian tube uh, because that's, um, I feel like I have to like really explain that to patients sometimes. Like, I really do think it's an eustachian tube dysfunction. They're like, no, 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 it's an infection. Like, no, no, no. I, I Believe me, there's this little tube there. I cannot see it, but that's the problem. Well, if you cannot see it, how do you know it's that one? Faith. Um, so besides that, which I tend to blame, you know, we have ostitis media. So I know it's less common of an infection with adults, but... Um, how I, they can happen. Absolutely. Um, we, we actually do see it more than, in, in, um, than people think, uh, you know, people talk about ear tubes in adults. We actually do that quite a bit, you know, I, I mean, sure. If they, they tend to be, uh, patients who've had ear issues, even as, as, as a child, but you can develop, um, you know, sinonasal, uh, issues as an adult and, and cause ear problems too. Yeah. It seemed like when I was reading just the, uh, this is, this is all stuff like dusting off cobwebs, but the, the eustachian tube is more horizontal in kids. And then in adults, it becomes more, I guess, angled so that maybe it drains better. Is that the idea of why both infections and eustachian tube dysfunction are more common in kids than adults? Correct. Yep. And then they talk about, uh, people have talked about having, um, you know, when you feed your your children, you kind of want them at a sort of an angled uh, position um, so that any feeds don't reflex inside into the ear. Yeah. 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 Understood. So I would love to hear how you explain eustachian tube dysfunction to an adult, because I, I'm still not sure that I understand, like that I understand it that well, that I could explain it to somebody in a coherent way. I often like to use a picture of an ear anatomy, so kind of a cross-section of an ear. So mm -hmm. you have the ear canal and the eardrum at the end of the tunnel. And behind the eardrum, you have three bones, your hammer, anvil, and your stirrup. And the eardrum vibrates those bones into the nerve of the inner ear, and that sends a signal to the brain. Now, within the space behind the ear, uh, there's actually, it's connected to the back of your nose. So there's something called eustachian tube. And it's all about plumbing here. So if that plumbing gets plugged up, things get backed up uh, and things can get backed up into the uh, ear for if you have a lot of sinus congestion or if you had a cold, things get in there. You know, that pipe closes off and obstructs and then you get buildup behind the ear. But when that tube opens up, as it should be, as it should for most people, um, it actually drains into the back of the nose. So I, I, I like to use piping as an analogy. Everybody knows how, you know, pipes work at, in their house, plumbing. <laughs> so that's how I, I uh, like to 
what I like to use for a comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's kind of genius. The pipe should be this, unblocked. This is the <laughs> yes, thing where exactly. when you're, you're up in a plane or you're just going up to high heights where if you're chewing gum or something, it tends to help. That's, that's working on the eustachian tube. Correct. Yep. You're opening the muscles that when you chew and swallow, there are muscles that are attached to the openings of the eustachian tube. And so when you swallow and, and, and chew and open and, you know, as you're trying to stretch your mouth and you actually open up mm-hmm. those, stretch those muscles and open up the eustachian tube. Mm-hmm. Now, now that we know how to explain it to patients, I mean, how do you identify that? I mean, otitis media, I think we're, we're used to, you look in the ear, you see a red, red eardrum. But eustachian tube dysfunction, how do you how do you confidently make that diagnosis? And, you know, what I guess the next question will be, what do we do about it for primary care? Well, when you look in the eardrum, you tend to see probably a little bit more opacification because they probably have had, you know, an infection uh, in the past uh, because of, quote, poor plumbing issues. Right. And so mm-hmm. um, they, you know, having uh, fluid behind the ear, sometimes that causes a lot of scarring on the eardrum. Um, and then also you can see that there's some negative pressure that kind of pulls uh, uh, the eardrum in. Um, and sometimes it's so severe that um, the eardrum is actually plastered on the hearing bones, um, like saran wrap that's kind of wrapped the structures of the inner ear. And you basically, it's like, I see the eardrum, but it doesn't look like it's in the right position. And it's because it's kind of just adhesed to different structures in the middle ear, or even the promontory, which is a cochlea. And then once those, you know, pockets and things like that form, then you could get other pathologies like cholesteatoma. But then, um, you know, those, besides just that examination, then I always ask about, like I said, the sinus issues, allergy problems. Um, And I would start treating them with just Flonase and antihistamine uh, or fluticasone and and uh, some type of antihistamine, nasal steroids. Um, any of the other counter ones are great. Uh, it's not one bed, honestly, better than others. Uh, and then, if especially if the, you can do some allergy testing as well, formal allergy testing. Um, and if they do test positive, you can they can consider allergy shots. Or even before they start on allergy shots, you can give them um, antihistamine nasal sprays in addition to steroid nasal sprays. The combination of two works synergistically and actually have been shown to help um, a lot with people with allergies um, in their sinuses. Oh, that's fantastic. So the azelastine is the antihistamine one that I'm familiar with. I'm not sure if there's Correct. another yep, available. And, and then you give it with a fluticasone or another nasal steroid. Correct. Correct. Okay. And of course, I have to give a plug on saline irrigations. I love saline irrigations. That's like the cheapest and the best thing out there. Uh, My now nine-year-old does it. He's been doing it for the last three years of his life. He doesn't like it, but it makes a big difference. He even says, Mom, it, I, can, I notice a difference when I do, don't do my irrigations. And so, yeah. So, and it's just messy. to be explicit, we're talking high volume neti pot. Yes, it's the, yep. it's this, uh, the squeezer body. A su- squeezer yeah. bottle I like a lot, correct? Um, yeah. yeah, that's great. I have a question though. Um, so I don't, like, I don't like it. It hurts. Uh, is what I get. So uh-huh. I've been using, I've been recommending, there's an aerosolized version, just the mist. Uh, I, Correct. I that has the same, it has the same effect. And if my follow-up is, I thought I saw this once upon a time in a label 
in one of those oh. in one of those devices, like if you have sinus pain or ear pain or sinus sinus or ear pressure, you shouldn't use it. So I feel like I make doctors turn in their graves when I say don't use it right now because you have ear pain. But what are your thoughts on that? It can uh, because if you irrigate um, around the eustachian tube, some people, especially you know when you irrigate, you're trying to blow your nose after you irrigate. Um, there's sometimes that reflexes into the ear. So yes, you have to be careful about doing your irrigations. Um, so here are some tricks about using your irrigations. Warm that water that's sailing up uh, in the microwave for like 10 to 15 seconds. Um, so it becomes <clears throat> room temperature or um, a little bit more, a little bit lukewarm. Um, no one likes to be waterboarded. Uh, that stuff when it's like, Room temp- like room temperature, like cold, or it's just not pleasant. And so, mm-hmm. um, warming it up, I think, makes a big difference. Um, and you can actually make your own saline irrigations. I know it's the, it's an this is an ear talk, but this is a sinus recipe. But you can use uh, uh, a teaspoon of like regular salt, uh, kosher salt, or sea salt, with a half quarter uh, teaspoon of baking soda. Um, and mix it in two cups of, uh, you know, water, like distilled water. Um, and you can make a batch of it. And anytime you're ready to use it, you can microwave it before you irrigate your sinuses. And Isabel uh, and Angela, I think we have, I think the great Dr. Beth Garbatelli may have made a, uh, some sort of a graphic that we have from like our previous episode where we talked about sinus. So uh, we, I think it has the formula in there as well. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, I'll have to link it. Yeah. So, okay. So that for, for eustachian tube dysfunction is, uh, are our patients going to surgery for this in the, like, I don't know that I've necessarily seen it, but I'm sure you have. So is that something that we should tell them might be necessary if this, like, you know, if we go after the sinuses and they're still miserable? If they have failed kind of conservative measures, we can, look at doing an ear tube um, to basically help ventilate the middle ear, uh, prevents the eardrum from retracting further, prevent fluid from building up. Um, of course, there are some side effects of doing ear tubes because you could potentially get more infections if you don't take care of your ear, getting water into the ear, which then gets through the ear tube and it'll cause more ear pain and infections. And so there's you know, potential sequelae for, you know, for doing, going the ear tube route. Um, there's something new that has come up in the last, I would say, 10 years or so, um, where we have started doing eustachian tube dilations, where you put a balloon in the eustachian tube to dilate and try to stent that open a little bit. Uh, we've actually, studies have tried to use stents and other things to try to open up the eustachian tube, but um, yeah, it, it, it's promising. The balloon dilations are promising, but it's not for everybody. It's for select um, patients who would benefit from the eustachian tube. But that's something to, that, um, you know, the ENT has to kind of do a pretty thorough evaluation to make sure that that person's a good candidate. So it's not offered to everybody. Yeah. That sounds very specialized. Uh, Paul, you do that in your office, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After the insulation. <laughs> it's just the balloon just actually, you know, passes right next to the carotid artery. So, um, yeah, this is uh, always a risk. Yipes. Uh, <laughs> so office, I, I office you just may not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so where, uh, Isabel, where are we going next with this? So we've talked about, uh, eustachian tube dysfunction, anything, any 
points that you we, we need to hit on with otitis media in adults or we started to talk about what make it what could it not be when it's not that so i think you started to talk about the i'm going to i always mispronounce this the cholesteatoma cholesteatoma yeah. thank you yeah. uh so when should we start thinking that could it be that versus a chronic issue or mastoiditis or, or autosclerosis also is something that, that i've seen before um what would what would lead us go like okay it's eustachian tube fix this content symptoms persist um thoughts on that so for otosclerosis, you don't see people with um, infections as much. They kind of develop kind of middle of life and, and feel like they're starting to get some hearing loss and not necessarily like ear pain, ear infections, those type of symptoms. Um, and then they tend to usually have start with like a conductive hearing loss. Um, so not too dissimilar to having some fluid in the eardrum, but there's no fluid or anything like that in there. Um, but people who have chronic otitis, um, uh, media and people who have pretty severe eustachian tube dysfunction makes you more predisposed to developing cholesteatoma and chronic mastoiditis. And um, so if patients come in to see you and you have tried, you know, all these measures, antibiotics after antibiotics and antihistamines and all the nasal regimen and nothing has proven to be any better. Um, so yes, your tube would be probably the next thing to consider with an ENT. Um, and then, be, and then, um, an exam, if you see, um, uh, basically this like pimple, you know, when you squeeze a pimple and you see that white cheesy stuff that comes out of the pimple, keratin debris. And, um, basically that's the kind of same debris that you would see in, um, and cholesteatoma, we call it keratin pearls. Um, so they, they're white um, skin uh, that is basically cholesteatoma. And then you find it in that, usually that top posterior superior quadrant corner around the bone, because that's the weakest part of your eardrum. And we usually see that um, most often in adults uh, where the cholestia comes from. And then that actually is the tip of the iceberg and potentially there's more cholesteatoma deeper in the middle ear and in the mastoid. So it doesn't always have to protrude out um, through the eardrum, but a little bit of debris on top of it actually may be like a red herring for like something else going on. Um, so out of these diagnoses for, for this patient that we gave you presenting, uh, Maurice, um, the 54-year-old guy, he was on vacation and um, I was in my head, I was thinking he was at the beach, so he was probably swimming. But what is like, what's it, it, when a patient like that comes to you with ear discomfort it, on, on the top of your differential, what do you think we should, because like, I know we could list like a hundred diagnoses for you, but what do you think are the most common ones that we would probably be seeing in primary care um, that we should think about? So number one, otitis externa, um, foreign body impaction. Uh, if, if they use Q-tips or they try to clean mm -hmm. their own ears, they have some retained object inside the ear canal. Um, otitis media, acute or chronic otitis media. Um, so infectious process uh, to begin with. And then uh, secondarily, uh, then you have the middle ear pathologies with the fluid or tumors um, of the inner uh, of the middle ear. Mm -hmm. um, and then and less likely of the inner ear, but it's more so in the middle ear um, for patients with pain and, you know, questions of, of, of infections. And then, mm -hmm. of course, we can go back to the TMJ route to look at things that, you know, 
that could cause ear discomfort and pain, or even peritidis, you know, people who have infections of the parotid gland that could also cause uh, mm. pain in the ear because it's so close to each other. Yeah. Okay. And, and bar- I know, I know Isabel, you had brought up the possibility of barotrauma. I don't know that I've seen that Angela or if, I, if I'm missing it, who's the patient that makes you think that there might be barotrauma? So people who um, actually say they, it was summertime and they jumped into the pool and their ear lands in the water just the wrong way that actually could cause barotrauma. And they have mm-hmm. ear and then ear pain after that. So it could be barotrauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they go diving, scuba diving, um, that could cause barotrauma. Or if they're flying and they had a URI um, and they're very congested, they incidentally may have had just a little bit of serious fluid in their middle ear. And then that descent from the airplane could cause mm. um, some trauma. Okay, very helpful. So I know we we were going to try to move on um, to an outer ear case in a minute, but Isabel, what else? Anything else you wanted to get to in this topic before we we go forward? We're, we're going to have to cure our patient too. But oh, well, how do I cure him? I mean, I, I, <laughs> how? I, because I this is the point where I was thinking, do we use a steroid? We've talked about already a nasal steroids and whatnot. Let's say he does have a titus. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a patient with a chronic otitis, and he's in an acute on chronic issue. What I mean, do I do drops, which I never have for something like this, or maybe I should? Uh, what and I guess oral antibiotics, like what's the approach that I should start with there? So, for patients with otitis media, um, you know, topical drops are not as effective. If their eardrum is really erythematous and irritated, sometimes I do give them dexamethasone drops, necessarily um, antibiotic drops for symptomatic relief for the edema and swelling of the drum, but most importantly, you know, the appropriate antibiotics um, and good coverage uh, to make sure the otitis uh, media is uh, addressed. Um, And then I do also give flutigazone as well, and that uh, helps hopefully open up the eustachian tube and antihistamine. For pretty severe patients who have like sinonasal issues, at the same time as their otitis, I actually give them a course of oral steroids, like a dose pack as well, to really help decrease the inflammation in their sinuses. Hopefully their cough, they probably usually are having a cough at the same time, and then um, their ear pain as well. Yeah. It, antibiotics, is it amoxicillin, amoxicillin clavulonic acid? Um... The, the, the latter, yeah. Amoxicillin uh, clavulonic acid. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... I guess uh, as you were saying that, I, I realized like chronic otitis media, does that look different? Like acute otitis media is like the red, you know, red painful eardrum, right? And uh, the other symptoms would be used to chronic otitis media. What does that present like? Or is that just the person with recurrent or Re- who has recurrent. acute and just doesn't get better? Yes, the secondary. Yeah, it's just okay. they, get, they just cannot clear. They might It might develop into serous otitis. And then they get infected again. It becomes uh, acute on chronic. It really becomes chronic otitis media. Understood. Okay. So, and actually at that point, at, with that chronicity, that's when we should be already referring them to you, right? Correct. Is yeah. there like a, a criteria? I know that for like, uh, it's out of the scope, like for strep, you have X amount of infections equals tonsillectomy. Not that we're going to do like an earectomy on these patients, but if we have so many infections, uh, so many otitis medias. At, um, what point should we start sending them to you? Like two a year, two a month, or is there a criteria that we should be following? 
So the uh, the AAO American uh, Academy of Otolaryngology actually has a great clinical guidelines uh, practice guidelines. Um, if you look on their website, they actually have various kind of um, um, ear not not only ear stuff but um, ENT. Um, like usual things that we kind of ask questions about, like otitis media, otitis externa. Um, and so they actually have uh, great uh, information for for practitioners and even patients. So I would kind of, mm-hmm. I would recommend looking at that as well. Um, but I, you know, for for me, I would consider patients who um, are at risk of, you know, severe hearing loss um, or people who have, um, you know, potential for complications from having chronic otitis media, you know, patients who are potentially immunocompromised. Um, and, uh, um, you know, complications of otitis media isn't um, very mild. You have meningitis, um, you know, uh, thrombosis of the your venous um, system in the brain. Um, so a lot of intracranial um, um, issues um, because of... Um, you know, complications of otitis media. So, you know, I wouldn't wait a whole you know, year before you refer them. Um, but yeah, if they are showing signs of having, you know, chronic um, otitis, uh, recurrent in, uh, infections, it may be mm-hmm. uh, time to refer to, to, from, to see an ENT. Probably after the first course of antibiotics didn't work. If I don't like what I'm seeing in there, I'm probably sending them back to, to you. I'm sending them to yep. you pretty quickly. Paul, I, I imagine that's uh, your practice <laughs> here. Yeah, it's, I just I will immediately to default to assuming I don't know what I'm doing and have them see an expert. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Let me do a little bit of a recap because we talked about a ton of stuff. So we, because we started this most recent section with the histories, we were asking about like how often they're having symptoms. Is there drainage, prior infections? Have they had prior surgeries? Um, you talked about uh, approaching things from the inside out. So thinking like if we don't if we didn't see anything obvious with the ear when we're examining it you know thinking about sinuses you ask you you said you also ask about flying and if they're flying frequently the changes in altitude can cause problems for for the eustachian tube um and the and the ear uh with the eustachian tube dysfunction which was one that I hadn't really heard about you talked you talked about explaining it like a tunnel and uh how you the treatment that you like to try is sinus really sinus treatment initially. So fluticasone, antihistamines, any of the over-the-counter ones, and maybe even doing allergy testing and sending for allergy shots if they seem like they're somebody who has a lot of allergies. Uh, you, you talked about azelastine can be added to fluticasone as like a complementary uh, therapy. That's a topical uh, antihistamine. And then uh, saline irrigation, the high volume, the neti pot or the squeeze bottle that um, and and that we're warming it in the microwave for ten to fifteen seconds to make sure uh, it's more comfortable for the patient. Uh, but ear tubes or even balloon dil- dilatation, which apparently comes near the carotids, uh, is might be necessary. Um, you told us barotrauma could be the person that uh, d- was di- jumping into a pool and hits their ear wrong, and then we sort of ended talking about with this patient. Uh, which antibiotics we would we might give, and that was uh, the cocktail that we might give for this person with uh, recurrent, like chronic otitis media, was antibiotics, fluticasone, and antihistamines. Um, might even give some oral steroids, and 
uh, I think that was sort of where we were. Then we were saying the guidelines from the AAO are really a nice place to start. Um, anything I'm missing that uh, from that recap? No, you summed it up perfectly. Probably not perfectly, but uh, I think it, listening back to these, I, th- I feel like it helps because uh, we go through it so fast to just like sort of no, solidify solidify things uh, and make sure that we understood because sometimes it uncovers that we I didn't understand <laughs> what uh, the way I thought I did. No, um, that's okay. Per- yeah, that's great. Did, so now, did. Isabel, let's do let's do the outer ear case. So now let's uh, now that we fixed the inner ear, let's see if we can help someone with an outer ear issue. And this is Lauren. We have Lauren is a 38 year old female with diabetes, and she came into clinic with this left sided earache and itchiness and some decreased hearing that started just started yesterday. She denied sinus congestion, cough, sore throat, but she felt a little feverish. And the over-the-counter eardrops that she's been using for pain didn't really help much. She even tried some cotton swabs, and there's these really fancy plastic earwax cleaners uh, that she tried to help with her symptoms, but it it only made things worse. So um, with a complaint like this, what is your approach? What are your initial thoughts other than why did she use (laughs) Q-tips? I have a big Q-tip in my office that says, do not use. <laughs> I probably will wield it in, in, in the clinic with me and when I see her. Did um, we hit on one of your pet peeves? Uh, oh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, one of the main, main things with her presentations I'm worried about is her diabetes and having an infection um, in the in the setting of her having diabetes, hopefully, um, I, I, one of the things I would ask her is make sure her diabetes is well controlled or how well controlled it is and what her glucose levels have been, um, because that helps me, um, determine how severe her infection could be. Um, and obviously I'm one, one thing that I'm thinking of in the back of my mind is, you know, some type of otitis externa, um, looking at the ear canal, um, you know, I would see some kind of swelling and edema, uh, um, and redness and purulence usually associated with this. Uh, and one of the things also I kind of have to think in my mind is, is this bacteria or fungal? Um, here in uh, Houston, in very humid environments, uh, we actually tend to have more um, fungal infections. Um, so it depends on what region you are in the country. Uh, back when I trained in Minnesota, uh, we didn't see as many fungal infections. And versus here in Houston, I see a ton of them. Um, and so uh, those are the things I kind of watch out, you know, what I'm, I'm thinking about when I, when I, when she first presents and I, I'm, you know, talking to her. That fungus is something, uh, um, it's a little tricky sometimes to differentiate the fungus from a bacterial. Is there something visually that you look for? I've heard the fuzzy stuff. I don't think it's fuzzy but I call it fungal. So uh, I feel like bacteria is more that kind of green, uh, purulent, kind of the usual pus that you would think what an infection would look like. But a fungal infection, the the skin is actually more friable. Um, If you touch it, it bleeds a little bit more easily. Um, It has that cottage cheesy kind of um, chunky kind of debris look. Um, sometimes you'll see hyphae, the white, that's the white fuzzy stuff I'm talking about. That's more Canada. But alternatively, you can actually see black debris and you can confuse that sometimes with cerumen, but it's actually aspergillus that's actually causing the, that's the mm-hmm. organism causing the um, infection. Um, and 
diabetes and aspergillus, unfortunately, is a very bad mix. Paul, have you seen that? I I don't. Uh, Boy, I hope not. <laughs> I, me too. <laughs> unfortunately, we see that quite a bit actually here in Houston. I haven't seen it yet. Now I'm getting nervous. <laughs> and then those people actually probably come in as an inpatient. So, you know, people who um, practice in the hospital probably see them or in the ER. Um, mm-hmm. they, they're the ones who, gosh, they're, they're actually in a pretty excruciating pain. Um, they have pain not just in the ear canal, but just all in their head. They have headaches, yeah. um, that kind of thing. And so you would also be concerned about um, you know, besides just otitis externa, is this something called malignant otitis externa or necrotitis otitis externa, aka osteomyelitis? So uh, basically, the infection has gotten uh, so severe that it's actually involved the temporal bone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I guess fortunately, I can only remember uh, one case of that that I've seen where. I, the person's whole like ear was red and there was red spreading around their face, like around this, the skin of the ear and they were very tender. And, you know, we sent them to the hospital. I think it, it seems like malignant otitis externa, not, not super common. That would just be walking into a primary care office. Those patients more are coming into an ER, like they're sick, they're, they're in severe pain. Um, not, you know, the diabetics, as you know, with these, they, they have symptoms, uh, sometimes may not be congruent with the severity mm. of the disease. Um, I have people who, you know, come in, like my ear has been draining uh, and they just have a polyp in the ear and some pus that has been there for a long time. That's just been draining for months and months. And then um, you get a scan and you're like, wow, uh, this it's really involved. So people who have, um, you know, malignant otitis externa who have like carotid um, involvement and, um, you know, all they're complaining about is pain, sometimes maybe some neurological, like mm-hmm. uh, cranial nerve deficits, but sometimes they don't have any symptoms besides pain and drainage. Once again, I will say, yipes, that is, <laughs> that's scary, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yes. Well, and, and I also just tend not to mess around with ear stuff. Actually, any, anything head stuff, I tend not to mess around too, too much with. <laughs> so anything that makes me even slightly nervous with a background of immunosuppression or uncontrolled diabetes, that kind of stuff, who, even looks borderline, it doesn't take much for me to, to escalate care because as we've established, I'm a scaredy cat. <laughs> One of the things I do appreciate um, you know, when, when patients do come into my practice is uh, primary care uh, practitioners who culture actually the ear um, sometimes before they come in. And so uh, especially if they tried something like cortisporin drops, you know, even with dexamethasone, uh, something that's affordable for them. And then it actually didn't get any better or it's still, you know, draining or having a lot of pain. I, you know, they culture the, 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 the stuff that's inside the ear and you can better direct their therapy rather than trying the therapy again or trying different, you know, and trying another antibiotic. And, and basically that span of time that you have them try the antibiotics you could spend on finding out and, you know, elucidating what kind of bacteria or organism is causing their symptoms. Um, and that saves on cost, I think, and time for the patient. And sending the culture, that's those, those long tubes with the long Q-tips. So that's one, that's a time it's okay to put a Q-tip in the air to, to get the culture. (laughs) That is correct. (laughs) Only, only we can do it. If you can see what you're putting inside the ear, then, then you can, you can clean your ear. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
I, <laughs> I, I like that. Um, that's great. So otitis externa, at least mild cases, I see, I see a lot of that. And I'm never sure quite what's the best starting liquid that I'm going to give them to drop in there. So can you, can you give us some <laughs> guidance on that? Cranberry. Uh, the cranberry. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for everything. <laughs> uh, for uh, patients who are, have a lot of water exposure, uh, swimmers and such, um, I do recommend mixing half and half of rubbing alcohol um, and uh, distilled white vinegar. And you can actually pre-make this concoction and put in your gym bag or swim bag or whatnot. And after you go swimming, put a couple of drops in the ear to kind of disinfect the ear. You don't need to deluge the ear canal with this uh, solution, but just to kind of disinfect a little bit um, as well. So uh, that's kind of the over-the-counter stuff that you can consider having patients use, especially if they're repeat offenders for uh, ear infections. But otherwise, um, for yourself, uh, in the clinic, you know, uh, ofloxacin uh, is a very commonly used, but that can be a pretty expensive, especially when it's combined with dexamethasone. One of my patients said that uh, even they, even if they had good insurance, the combination drug uh, cost them, I think, $150 per bottle. And so that's just sometimes not affordable. And um, so I actually split them up into two different drops, two different bottles. So you can, they can buy the ofloxacin ophthalmic and uh, dexamethasone ophthalmic as well um, and just combine them. It's the same thing. Um, and two, bo- even though it's two bottles, but the combination, the two of them to, uh, purchased is actually cheaper than the combination itself. Mm-hmm. And I want to underscore this point. You're saying these are the ophthalmic formulations and not... Correct. That's a good point. Not for the ear specifically. Gotcha. Correct. You can use um, eye drops in the ear, but you can't use ear drops in the eye. Um, the eye drops... <laughs> It's a good tip. <laughs> the, the eye drops are actually pH balanced. And so you don't have to worry about any, you know, some people that put eardrops in there like, oh, it burns, it stings too much. Okay. You just, you just reminded me something I learned with my, from my first boss. That's true. You can, you can put eye stuff in the ear, but not the other way around. That's brilliant. Um, <laughs> and that would work if we, if, with any combination, like a one-to-one, I guess. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, so quinolones, because I know there's also ciprofloxacin and dexamethasone drops, or correct. I think maybe even hydrocortisone is combined with it. I've had, I've had some pretty big price tags when I tried to order some of those. So sometimes it's taken a little bit of uh, guessing. What about the just like the acetic acid, or aren't there some some non antibiotic like supposed drying agents or that you could put in? I'm not sure if you ever use those or if those, if those work? So, um, one of the ones I actually used to use all the time was acetic acid, hydrocortisone, uh, combination, Mm -hmm. but that's actually been more and more difficult to, um, get and purchase, um, you know, uh, at least by prescription, but that's why I, you know, acetic acid is basically, um, white vinegar. And so it's diluted white vinegar. So if you have distilled white vinegar that you know, try not to use apple cider vinegar or any other vinegar. Just distilled white vinegar will do just as uh, well. You can just dilute oh, that's, it. That's great. Yeah. And what if a, if a patient has a history of, say, tympanostomy tubes or ruptured TMs or anything like that? Does that change the management plan? Like, should I then be more cautious about stuff that I'm just pouring into the ear or does that not matter so much? 
A thousand percent. Yes. So people who have a perforation or any opening into their middle ear, they should not actually be using the -the over-the-counter eardrops. Um, This includes the deep, uh, like the -the over-the-counter, like ceramolytics. I would only recommend prescription eardrops uh, for somebody who has perforations in the eardrum or opening. That's a great question. So the ofloxacin, otic formulation could could be used even if there's a open correct uh ear eardrum it's not it's not contraindicated no it's not great. contraindicated mm-hmm. is that because you're worried about sterility with the over the counter or the just the quality or it's, why are the over the counter ones more dangerous than the prescription in that case um one of the reasons is probably not pH balance so if you put it inside the ear it's um it's going to burn uh, like heck <laughs> So it's not going to feel very good for the patient. Right. Um, so, yeah. And, and yes, I think there's always a risk of infection as well. And then you could mm-hmm. make their problem even worse. Okay. And quick follow-up, the ophthalmic would be okay to use in that setting as well. Correct. Thank you. So it sounds like we can do this rubbing alcohol and, and distilled white vinegar 50-50 mix. And, you know, for my kids during swim season when they're getting ear and, you know, otitis externa, we can do that to either prevent it or to, to treat it if they have a mild infection. But, um, what if there's wax plugged in the ear? That's the other really common thing that, that we see. How can we flush this out in primary care or should we scrape it out? Um, vacuum it out. I don't know what, what's available. What should we be doing? (laughs) Um, if it's very solidly packed in there, uh, like uh, due to a Q-tip or keys or any other instrumentation, um, I would probably recommend some mineral oil. Uh, they over the count and, and uh, probably one or two drops you know, every other day or every third day if it's really impacted. What that does is it actually loosens up this um, cerumen, uh, lubricates it so that uh, hopefully it'll come out on its own. Or when you're actually going to be cleaning it out, it actually will come out a lot easier. Instrumenting it while it's really packed in there really hurts the patient because sometimes the ear, the cerumen may be actually right on the eardrum. And so any manipulation of it will actually, you know, cause more swelling and, and, and pain. Um, just the same as the irrigation. I'm actually not a big proponent of the irrigation as well. Um, the irrigation, if you put water in there and it doesn't flush out, the water gets trapped behind the cerumen and then you get, get an otitis externa because of that. Um, yeah. So, um, so the irrigation has to be, you know, be, be, you have to be careful with who you select, uh, who you do the irrigations on. And then thirdly, if patients who have had a lot of ear infections before already in the past, who has surgery or had holes or, you know, ear tubes definitely should not be flushed either uh, because they, there's a risk of perforating their eardrum if it's not perforated already and causing more damage. I actually, um, I love cleaning ears. It's, it, it, it brings me joy to do ir- irrigation. So, I, so hearing you say not to do that, I'm, I'm so sorry. I do this all the time, but I have criteria. If the, if the earwax is really dark and it's, it almost looks like a little pebble in there. It gets so dark and it's pretty mm-hmm. firm. Mm-hmm. So I send the patients home to do some oil, mineral oil or something for a few days before I even attempt it because, uh, it's it, it takes forever to do also. Like I don't have all day. Uh, as much as I'd like to spend all day doing it, I can't. Yes. 
Isabel is actually like the pimple popper MD of ears. I, nice. from what I'm, that's what I'm <laughs> gathering from this uh, revelation. I love it. <laughs> so I, I'm not hearing you mention the sermonolytics. I'm not hearing hydrogen peroxide or, or that kind of stuff. Is is that is that because you don't use them? You prefer mineral oils to those, or are there circumstances where that stuff might be indicated? Because I feel like typically the move is you kind of give the patient those drops to to put in their ears, then they don't get better, then you send them to ENT. And I don't know if you've if you've made ENT's job easier or not. So is, do they have a role in this type of patient? They, they could. Um, the problem with the sermonolytics, uh, because sometimes they have hydrogen peroxide in them, and what that does is it does not um, move the cerumen. It just basically, it's absorbed by the, the cerumen. And you, you know, you, a lot of people hear the fizzle, cracking, popping sounds, uh, and it swells up the cerumen, but it actually does not dislodge the cerumen. And so that's why I actually don't like the Perfect. hydrogen peroxide as much. Yeah. You're hydrating the cerumen, Paul. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> You're not quite occluded yet, so let me help with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ex- exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, it definitely. Yeah, that's practice changing for me because I do like okay, we have to do one part warm water and hydrogen peroxide, but now I'm just mm-hmm. going to go straight for just warm water. No sense in doing the hydrogen peroxide. Yeah, it's it's it. Uh, I, I'm I'm not saying never, but I just don't feel that that is as um, effective as okay. what I've seen like mineral oil to do um, mm-hmm. with removing ceramin. So, yeah. yeah. And I've seen they sell the ear scrapers. It, it almost looks oh. like, oh my God. Y- you know, like a ring pop, how they have, ha- how the ring pop has that circle. And then the Q-tip part of it on- or the scro- scoop part of it only goes, you know, so far. So it's not going to hit your eardrum. Uh, I have not used those. I just, I've, I've seen them out there and I was like, I bet you ENT doctors hate the- <laughs> these. I think yeah. there's also like there's these fiber optic things that you can sort of mm-hmm. see in your ear as you're cleaning, which I also just gives me the screaming heebies. Like I feel like if I was an ENT doc, <laughs> I would lose my mind if my patient had those. Yeah. I, yes. I mean, how do they really them. know what they're seeing? Uh, they don't, they, the pathology wise, it just, uh, <laughs> yes, <Right>. yes. <laughs> Again, you know, even just stems down to the regular Q-tip. So <laughs> don't yeah. have, you don't need technology. Uh, just mm-hmm. don't instrument your ear. <laughs> And how do you tell patients, like, once you get the wax out of there, what's your counseling to patients to prevent this from happening again? Again, coming back to the mineral oil, I um, have them use one or two drops in the ear uh, at night before they go to bed once a week. And um, I tell them after I clean that ear, they have a clean slate. And now it's up to them to maintain it without, you know, putting anything inside the ear except potentially the mineral oil. One thing I do recommend, and, and especially some people who use a lot of earplugs uh, for work or listening to music or have hearing aids, they will probably accumulate more cerumen um, just by the nature of they're keeping something plugged in their ear um, and it's going to push the cerumen deeper and deeper. So they, it's important to make sure they, first of all, clean off the um, apparatuses so that they don't get infections. Uh, and number two, have see your you know primary care provider or, or, or ENT um, to help them keep their ears clean to avoid issues. All right. So we, we have just a couple things left. We were, we were mentioning uh, people that have itchy ears. A lot of, we get a lot of itchy ears in primary care. So what, what do you tell them to do for that? I was mentioning triamcinolone ointment, but you, you had a better solution. 
um, what I like to use is uh, fluoroacetylene oil. Um, it's 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 a mix of steroids uh, mixed in oil, so it not only lubricates uh, the ear canal, especially if they have a lot of wax, but it has steroids for the anti-inflammatory conditions, so like psoriasis or eczema, uh, very helpful. Um, because a lot of times, people patients may not actually have otitis externa. It's basically just an exacerbation of eczema inside the ear canal. Um, and so once you give them the oil, it actually helps relieve them the system that there's symptoms and actually decrease their burden of wax as well. Yeah. Okay. So that's fantastic. So don't, so basically not forgetting that when they, when somebody has a uh, complaint, we think maybe it could be uh, an otitis externa that, that there is, you know, a dermatitis is on the, Absolutely. from a non-infectious source is on the on the differential or even psoriasis. So, Correct. okay. Yes. That's great. So we've really, I mean, we've covered so much here. Um, I guess to quickly recap are rubbing alcohol and distilled white vinegar, not apple cider vinegar, 50, 50 mix, uh, is something that we can use as a, you know, over the counter, um, hack to, to treat the ear. Acetic acid and hydrocortisone drops are, for some reason expensive now, so not using as much, but the the, the white vinegar is, is basically acetic acid. We can prescribe ofloxacin either alone or uh, with dexamethasone. Um, so the combination may be more expensive, but you can also give them two drops and kind of approximate that. And we can use uh, eye formulations in the ear, but don't use the ear formulations in the eye uh, with, with the drops. Mineral oil is one, it sounds like that's one of our workhorses for dislodging wax. And then once we, uh, they use it every one or two drops every other day. And then once the wax is gone, they have their clean slate, they can use it once a week uh, and to try to prevent that from building back up. And then irrigation, the caution there is if the, if the, all the liquid gets trapped and doesn't drain out, then they're going to, you're going to get otitis externa behind a big ball of wax. So be careful about that. Uh, don't stick Q-tips in your ear, and uh, <laughs> hydrogen peroxide gets absorbed by the cerumen and could <laughs> it could make it bigger. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I find that so funny, Paul. Just uh, <laughs> it's kind of great because you can also see why people will be like, it must be working in the same way. Like you remember how? I, well, I won't put this on your parents, but like when you had like we skinned your knee and we would just dump hydrogen peroxide and it would foam up, and now that everyone's like, please don't do that. But like it looks like it's gonna do something, I feel like this sounds like it might actually be working. So I'm sure it's, we're, we're breaking a lot of hearts with this episode. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, that's what I tell the patients that I hear the fuzzing. It's working. It's working. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I look, look, if, if I want something to burn or tingle, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's how I know it's working, Isabel. Come on. <laughs> Medicine is pain. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> it's engraved over my office door. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> How do we induce pain <laughs> on the next curbsiders? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I might have to make you a plaque for your office, Paul, that says, <laughs> says medicine is pain. <laughs> Can we get like a merch t-shirt? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe we will. Uh, quoting Paul Williams. All right, uh, Angela, I think we have to ask for take-home points. It's been so much fun. A uh, couple couple things you want the audience to remember from this recording. I think you summarized a lot of the points that we had talked about already, but uh, main thing is do a good examination, um, ask uh, questions uh, appropriately, and 
And don't forget the nasal sinus um, component to ear problems uh, because that can kind of help resolve the underlying issue uh, um, of their of the ear um, problem to begin with. So, yeah, that's about it. Thank you so well much for having me. It's well within our wheelhouse, so we can do that. And uh, thank you so much for all your time. This this has been fantastic. A lot of a lot of practice changing stuff uh, from from this discussion tonight. That's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy, yummy. <laughs> Not an echo. Still hungry for more? Join our Patreon and get all, all of our episodes ad-free, plus twice-monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash curbsiders. You can find our show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox, including our Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please send an email to askcurbsiders at gmail.com. Or you can subscribe, rate, and review the show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts, really. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Isabel Valdez. And to our whole Curbsiders team, our technical production is done by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Chris the Chew Man Chew runs our Discord. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watt. And I've been Isabel Valdez. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.